Welcome to the Three Strands Podcast. Thank you for joining us. It's our hope and prayer that you will experience God's blessing in your life through our ministry. At Three Strands Church, our goal is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. So a lot of times at the start of a new series or the start of a new teaching time, pitch you guys with something kind of funny or a good story or stuff like that. But man, I just got to tell you, when I was getting ready to teach this week, I found myself like crying as I was thinking through the beginning of this teaching time today. I just felt like I couldn't like uh, hit you with anything funny because it like hurt my heart so bad to think about it. And so uh, I know some of you in the room are going to relate to what we're talking about today. And I just want you to know that like um, you don't hurt alone. I hurt for you. But beyond that, even if I didn't hurt for you, uh, Jesus hurts for you. And so I want you to know that it's a serious, tough subject we're going to talk about today. I know there are people in the room that relate to it. I know there are people in the room that want to hide from this, and they don't even want other people to know it's how they're feeling, but we're going to hit it anyhow. And uh, that's kind of what we do. Whether it's um, difficult or easy, we're going to hit the truth and just kind of um, speak it out loud as much as we want. So we're starting a new series today called Away in a Manger. It's going to take us up to Christmas. And for the next six weeks, we're going to um, cover some of the smallest, tiniest little characters in the Bible, because sometimes big blessings show up in small packages, and nobody knows that more real this week and last week than the Ball family, right? Like, you guys have experienced that a couple weeks ago, and so uh, Wyatt's with us today for his second trip. It's on his attendance sheet. This is his second time here, so uh, there'll be a sticker on there for him later. But So uh, we're going to dive into this new series, because when I was planning this just about a little over a year ago now, when we were planning this series, um, kind of got this idea in my head. What if we did a little study through the Bible on some babies? Like just some characters in the Bible that maybe they don't get talked about as often as others. or They're just kind of small, but when you look at their stories, they reveal kind of some big truth or some big blessing. And so I want to um, do that with you during this series. I want to do my best to take as much attention off of me and put as much attention on God and His Word as we can during this series. So don't just listen to my teaching. Listen to God's Word and then just check it out for yourself. Last week after church, um, Chad Sterrett came up to me and he said, you know, usually at this church we, we talk about Jesus, but today I feel like we talked about you. I was like, uh, he thought Kenny bragged on me a little too much, so he's just not used to hearing Kenny say anything nice about me. And so uh, we're going to do a better job this week of just putting all the attention on Jesus. But uh, not that you didn't do a good job. He's going to hear that as he didn't do a good job. Man, you're so sensitive. You're like my church wife. You know what I mean? Like you're so sensitive. i got to be careful what I say around you. That wasn't intended to mean he didn't do a good job last week. Just want to uh, make me smaller and smaller. So, but um, anyhow, so I, I looked at these passages we're going to study, and I kind of thought to myself, there's a lot of blessings that we miss out on on life. And we miss out on them not necessarily because we're trying to disobey God, or not necessarily because we're trying to be our own God, not necessarily because uh, we're not smart enough to understand them, but oftentimes it's simply because our own feelings or our own expectations get in the way and they block us from being able to see the blessings around us. All of you in the room know this to be true. I, I wrote down just a couple of examples of how that comes up. A beautiful day is unnoticed because of a busy schedule. How many people have experienced that, right? You miss out on the beauty of the day simply because you're so busy. A warm house goes unappreciated because of other financial strains. You don't even stop to consider how blessed you are just to have a place to live. A healthy family is taken for granted. A job well done still doesn't seem quite good enough to be celebrated by you. 
all these blessings that are around us and we miss out on them because our feelings or our emotions block us from being able to see them or blind us from the truth about our life. And those seem like small little blessings, but what I found in studying for this series was there are big blessings too. Big blessings that we miss out on for the same reasons. Because our feelings or our expectations have blinded us from the truth, have blocked us from being able to see the blessing God's put right in front of us. And so in this series, I picked out six blessings that we often miss. And God's going to show us how we miss out on these blessings through the stories of some of the smallest characters in the Bible. And I love that. I love it that big blessings come in small packages. My kids don't quite get that yet. They still think the bigger the box, the better the present. And that's not always the case. They'd be disappointed if they opened up a huge box and there was nothing inside of it. They still haven't quite grasped that idea that sometimes the best blessings or the best gifts come in small packages. So over the next six weeks, I'm going to ask you one question every week. Here's the question. You ready? It'll be on the screen. What is blocking your blessing? What is blocking your blessing? And there's lots of things that do that. But for the most part, for me, I've found that what's blocking my blessing is often found right inside my heart or right inside my own mind. It's my own thoughts, my own presuppositions, my own view of the world, my own feelings. And so today I want to hit you with the first one. And I know there are people in here, whether you'd want to admit it or not, that can relate to this. Here's the first one we're going to look at. There's a blessing that you miss when you feel like a mistake. And I wonder, like just reading that phrase, how many people in our room secretly feel about themselves like they're just a mistake. You didn't have the best childhood. You often feel like people don't even like you, don't even want you around. Or maybe you just feel like no matter what you do, you just keep making the same mistakes over. And you find yourself looking in the mirror. I brought a mirror today. Is that okay? But you find yourself looking in the mirror And what you see when you look in there, if it, is that going to distract you? Mike, if I leave that right there, will that distract you? Because I know you like to look at yourself. Is that okay? All right. But what you see when you look at that mirror is a mistake. You're not good enough. Life hasn't turned out the way you wanted it to turn out. You see something different for sure than what God sees. But maybe even from what all of us see when we look at you. And what you see is your mistakes, your failures, your shortcomings, and it keeps you from seeing a huge blessing that God wants you to see. It keeps you from experiencing happiness and success that God would want you to experience. And you've tied our worth to what we see when we look in this mirror. And what we see is ugly. Let me see if I can give you some examples of how we do that. So if you trace back like the history of our country, we have raised our kids differently throughout the generations, right? There was a time in our country when we were in like an agricultural society. And for the most part, parents taught their kids how to farm, how to work the land. And that was kind of the goal, raising your kids, if you wanted them to grow up to be successful moving forward. In fact, there was a long stretch of time in our nation's history where it was almost frowned on to even go to school 
right? Kids were dropping out of school at super young ages to learn how to farm, to learn how to work the land, because school wasn't a priority. It was all about agriculture. And then we entered this new age. They called it the industrial age. And all of a sudden, there was this shift from, hey, if I want my kids to be happy and successful, they need to learn how to farm and work the land, to know if I want my kids to be happy and successful, have a good life after they become an adult, I need to teach them to get into a factory and get a good-paying job, a union job, a job with a pension or things like that. And so there was this massive push for people to get plugged into the industrial age, into the factory setting in our country. Then we hit this next gap of time where, all, in fact, a lot of, my, a lot of our like, parents and grandparents that are represented in this room, like if you're my age, maybe like your parents or your grandparents, that was them. They were kind of like the industrial age group. And they highly valued things like get out of high school and go to the military or get out of high school and get a factory job, work it for 30 years and then retire, right? That was kind of like the way they did life for the most part. And then we hit this new age, this next step after that called the information age. That's kind of the age I grew up in, right? In the information age, and there became this huge push to go to school. It was all about education. What do you mean you're going to get out of high school and you're just going to go to a factory and work? No, if you want to make something out of your life, you've got to go off to college, right? And there was this push. And so a lot of people like in my generation, you'll hear them tell their story and they'll be like, hey, I was the first one in my family to ever graduate from college, right? Because before our generation, it wasn't that big of a push to go to college. But everything became about education, the information age. And if you want to get ahead and be successful in this life, you've got to get some schooling, get some degrees. And then I remember like when we were in college, it was almost like at that point, like even a college degree wasn't enough. And they were like, you got to just, the best thing to do as soon as you graduate college, go on and get that post-grad degree. Get yourself a master's degree because if you're going to get ahead, you're going to have to be in that class of people. And that became everything. Now that's kind of shifted again. And now we're in this digital age. And, and so now there's this push for kids growing up. Parents are kind of teaching their kids growing up. It's like, hey, if you want to get ahead in this world, you better understand technology. You better master it, know how to create it, know how to use it, because those are where the good jobs are at. And so if you want to be successful and happy in life, you better learn to be good at technology. Of course, there's always some overlap in all those ages. There's still farmers today, still people working in factories, still people way back then who were getting education. All that stuff is true, but for the most part, that's kind of the way society has functioned. But the problem with all those approaches to raising our kids is that somewhere along the way, we started to teach everybody way back when, and it's carried through to today, we started to teach everybody to tie their self-worth to what they do instead of whose they are. And so now people look in the mirror in the morning and they think, I'm a loser got some dead-end job. I don't know anything about technology. I can't farm. can't even find a factory job. I don't have that much education. And even if they did have all those things, they'd still look in this mirror and think, you know what, that doesn't even make sense. I got this degree and I'm flipping burgers. I know how to do tech stuff, but where do I put that into practice? I mean, I got a job in Silicon Valley, but and it pays me well, but it just feels like when I look in the mirror, I'm incomplete. 
We've tied our self-worth to the wrong thing. We've hitched our image of ourselves to the wrong wagon. We believe that our value comes from what we do. And just about everybody in this room is the same way. And if you do good, you might for a while think you're okay. And, and if you do something wrong, then you look in at me and you think, I'm just a loser. I'm just a mistake. Sometimes you don't even have to do the things. They could just be done to you. I was raped, and now I'm a loser? I was abandoned as a kid, and I'm the one who's no good? But somehow we look in that mirror, and even stuff that other people did to us or around us impacts what we see in the mirror. If you don't hear anything else today, this is what I want you to hear. You ready? When God created you, He didn't create you so that you could find your self-worth in all the things you do. He created you so you could find your self-worth in the fact that you belong to Him. Think about it. If you're a mom or a dad, if your child came to you and they thought, Mom, I'm such a loser so I never do anything right, what would be the first thing you'd say to him? You'd be like, no way. You're not a loser. You're mine. I tell my kids that all the time. Do you know why daddy loves you? And they know why daddy loves them. I love you because you're my kid. Not because of anything you do. In fact, if you did anything, no matter what it is, I would still love you. And the truth is, you would still be mine. I want them to know that their self-worth has nothing to do with what they do when they look in the mirror. It has everything to do with whose they are. I want you to know the same thing today. When you feel like a mistake, I want you to remember today whose you are. And this is so conflicting inside of us because we battle it. We feel good sometimes. We feel bad other times. Then you decide to give your life to the Lord, right? You get saved, they call it, right? You have a come to Jesus moment. I don't know, whatever the church you went to, whatever the person who shared the gospel with you, whatever passage in the Bible you read, maybe you called it believe, maybe you called it receive, maybe you called it child of God, maybe you called it saved, redeemed, whatever. All those terms for, I decided at some point I needed to follow Jesus with everything. And he rescued me. And so then you get plugged into a church and you come to church, but something still seems off. You kind of like, you feel like you're, you don't fit in with your worldly friends anymore because they're out doing all kinds of bad stuff and you feel bad about that inside now because you actually are a Christian and the Holy Spirit is kind of like, hey man, don't be doing that kind of stuff anymore. And so you don't feel like you fit in with that crew anymore. And then you come to church and you look around and you're like, I don't know if I fit in here either. I mean, I'm not as, I'm not as good as some of these people. You know, you look at like some of these moms and they're like writing Bible verses on their kid's lunch before they send it to school. And you're like, it's all I can do to get a shower in the morning, you know? And you come to church and like, I don't know as much about the Bible as them. And I don't, I'm not as committed and consistent as they are. And I'm not as nice. I can't control my temper like that guy can. And you feel like you don't quite fit in here either. And you're stuck. You're stuck looking in this mirror where no matter where you're at, you don't feel like you measure up. Like you're just a mistake. An in-betweener. That's why it's so important who holds your mirror. 
God holds your mirror, he was like, I want to show you the right thing. I want to show you the right thing. You can't let other people hold that mirror. And some of you made mistakes like 20 years ago. And you're still walking around terrified that the mistake you made way back then is going to be the name you'll have to wear the rest of your life. Mistake. Failure. But listen, failure, mistakes, those aren't people. Those are events. Failure is an event, not a person. Don't believe the lie when you look in the mirror that you're a failure even if you've failed at something. No, you're not. You're not a mistake. You're a masterpiece. I don't know where we got that idea that because I made some mistake, because I failed at something, now I've got to wear that the rest of my life. Not if you're in Christ. Who would even dare to accuse one whom God has chosen as his own? Romans chapter 8. No one. You're not a con. You're not a convict, a con man. You're a conqueror. You're not an addict. You're completely adored. You're not a loser. You're the Lord's. He owns you. You belong to him. You're not a mistake. You are a masterpiece the Bible says, created intentionally to live out all the good things God planned for you long ago. And some of you are living in the prison of other people's description of you. Instead of living up to God's calling, you're living down to others' condemnation of you. You're letting other people define you and name you and call you things. And then you're believing it when you look in the mirror. I want to show you somebody in the Bible who had that kind of story. Character you maybe heard a lot about if you've ever been in church. But maybe not so often this part of his story when he was a baby. It's in the Old Testament. If you want to follow along with us, you can. The verses will be on the screen. But we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. But there's this character in the Bible and his life didn't start out well. It might be like some of your lives. You'd look back at it and be like, man, I didn't have a good family situation growing up. I got abandoned, I got abused, neglected, mistreated. It wasn't all good. It was ugly. It was messy. It was a mistake. That's this guy's story. Let me give you the background so you know what's going on, right? So if you get to the end of the book of Genesis and you find Joseph, who we studied at the advance. If you went to the advance this year, we kind of studied through a good chunk of Joseph's life at the advance. But you find Joseph and his dad, all of his brothers and sisters, all of their servants, all of their um, relatives, they all settle in the land of Egypt. They found some safety there and some favor with the king, or Egypt called him the Pharaoh, right? And so they settle in the land of Egypt and they begin to have babies. They begin to multiply. And at the end of Genesis, you find this small group of several hundred people, Joseph, his dad, his brothers, his sisters, all their relatives or servants living in Egypt. Not their own country, but living there in safety. And then there must be some gap of time between the end of Genesis and Exodus chapter 1 because when you get to Exodus chapter 1, you find out that that small group of people has multiplied like rabbits. And the Egyptians are getting scared of them. I need you to understand the setting. It was like racially tense. 
you've got this group that by the beginning of Exodus was now numbering at least in the hundreds of thousands, maybe a little over a million or two people living amongst all the Egyptians, two separate races of people living in one country, and there was racial tension. And they didn't like each other. And so Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who didn't know any of Joseph's story or anything, he wasn't, he's now a hundred years removed maybe from Joseph. He wasn't kind to these Hebrew people. And so he makes a decision. We got to do something before this minority population gets out of control and they take us over. So he enslaves them. He forces them to build pyramids and tombs and buildings, all these structures. And it says these harsh on them. But that still doesn't solve the problem. Even in that harshness, even in that slavery, they're still multiplying faster than the Egyptians, the Bible says. So Pharaoh's concerned, so he comes up with a new plan, and the new plan is this. Any Hebrew who has a baby boy has to throw that baby boy into the Nile River and kill it. If they have a girl, they can let the girl live. They apparently weren't afraid of girls. Their girls must not have been like our girls because I'm actually more afraid of girls than guys. But they were like, if you have a girl, you can let her live. But if you have a boy, you've got to throw the baby boy into the Nile River and kill it. Could you do that? I mean, that would be, be awful, right? I mean, just think about that for a second. And then we get to Exodus chapter 2 that we're going to look at today. And a man and a woman get married. They decide to have a baby, and they have a baby boy. And the law says it's supposed to throw that baby in the Nile and kill it. And here's the story. It's in Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. About that time, a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby. Some versions of the Bible translate that healthy baby, good baby. He, he wasn't deformed or handicapped. He was just a special, healthy, good baby. And so she kept him hidden for three months. Now, every mom in the room would do that. Is that true? I mean, I can't even imagine any of us having a baby and being like, I'm just going to chuck it into the river. Nobody would do that. So she hides the baby for three months. Nursing the baby, caring for the baby. But in verse 3, when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket, laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. We're going to come back to that. What's she doing? We're going to come back to it. Then the baby's sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen. Okay. What's going on here? What's going on here? Here's what's going on. You ready? Like any mother, she couldn't bear to throw her son in the Nile. So she hides him. But then somebody's going to figure out, I got a boy, so what do I do? I can't kill him, but I can't keep him. What do I do? So she makes this basket, waterproofs it, puts the baby in the basket, takes him over to the edge of the Nile, sets the basket down in the water. And I think, the Bible doesn't say this, but I think, at that point, she's just thinking, I don't know what else I could do. I don't know what else I can do. I don't know if he'll make it. Maybe an animal will eat him. Maybe he'll fall out of the basket and drown. I don't know. 
but I can't throw him in. At least this way, maybe he'll float way downstream to another country. Maybe somebody will get him. I don't know. I don't know what she was thinking, but I know I couldn't throw my baby into the water. And this, for whatever reason, was the solution she came up with. And her daughter, the baby's sister, stands back to see what's going to happen. But it turns out, God's going to intervene, do something awesome here. Let me read you the rest of the story. Verse 5. Soon Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's the king of Egypt, right? His daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry, or some translations say pity for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Listen to this story. This blows my mind. Verse 7. Then the baby's sister comes up to the princess and she says, should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? She asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mom. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother, and I'll even pay you to do it. It's awesome. We need that today. I love, I would love that. Go ahead and take care of your own kids and we'll pay you to do it. I like that, right? So the woman looked, took her baby home and nursed him. Verse 10. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him as her own. The princess named him Moses for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. The word Moses sounds like a Hebrew word that means to lift out. So I lifted him out of the water. I named him Moses, right? Think about this story for a second. I wonder what mom, Jochebed her name was, I wonder what she was thinking. I had this baby and you don't have like sonograms and you don't know if you're having a boy or a girl. And so you're giving birth, literally thinking to yourself, I hope it's a girl, right? You don't know. And so the baby comes out and it's a boy and you're almost like all of your joy is crushed. You try to hide the baby and you can't. And so you're like, I guess I'm just going to have to give up. I'm going to have to, I guess having a baby was a mistake. There's a lot of people in our world that think that today. Maybe they have an unplanned pregnancy or maybe they just simply think to themselves, I don't know if we should even be bringing kids into this world. I feel like I've heard that my whole life from people, you know. I don't know if you even want to bring kids into this world. And you feel like it's a mistake. But right then, when she thought it was like a mistake and it was over and it was hopeless and there was nothing else to do, just stick him in the basket and hope for the best. God shows up in the middle of her mistake with a miracle. And I wonder for you, how many miracles are waiting right on the other side of your mistake if you just wouldn't give up? If you would just see what God sees. God intervenes and does something amazing. Has this royal princess take custody of the baby and then even pay Moses' mom to take care of him. It's awesome. But the story doesn't end there. Moses grows up in the palace. And I imagine most of Moses' life plays this out. But he had almost like an identity crisis. Am I a Hebrew or an Egyptian? Am I rich or poor? Am I with them or with you? Does anybody really even want me? My mother put me in the river. And here I'm in this palace with a princess. And does she even love me? Is she, she's not even my real mom. Like That plays out through his whole life. Insecurity, 
wondering if he's a mistake, wondering if he's good enough, wonder if he's qualified for anything. In fact, it kind of comes to a head as Moses grows older and says many years later, so he was an adult at this time, but many years later, he's out walking and he sees an Egyptian mistreating one of the Hebrew people. Whose side is he on? He doesn't even know. But it angers him so much that he kills the Egyptian and then he panics. I don't know. Was I supposed to do that? I, I killed one of them. But I kind of am one of them and I defended one of them, but I'm not even really one of them. And the Hebrew people probably looked at him as a sellout. And the Egyptian people probably looked at him as like a second-class citizen. And I don't know if he fit in anywhere. <laughs> Does it sound like us? I don't know if I'm good enough to fit in here. I don't know if I'm wicked enough to fit in out there. I, I, I don't want to do all those things. But I come in here and I feel like all these people are better than me. Like I don't even know which side I'm in. And Jesus is like, hey, you're looking at the wrong. Look at that. I want to show you. You're mine. You're mine. You're not a mistake. You're not a mistake. And so Moses is so afraid, he runs off. He runs to another country, Midian. He lives there for 40 years. That's a long time to be hiding from a mistake, right? He runs off to Midian. And he thinks, I guess now I'm safe because nobody knows about my past. Hmm. I get to hear that one a lot too. Nobody knows about it here. He goes to Midian, he gets married, and he has kids. He becomes a shepherd, and he's fairly successful, and he's living his life, but he keeps looking in the mirror and still seeing something incomplete. And then you get this famous story in the Bible in Exodus chapter 3. We don't have time to look at this whole thing, but man, I'd love it if you guys would on your own read Exodus chapter 1 through chapter 4 this week. What a story. But in Exodus chapter 3 is the story that gets called the burning bush. And God shows up to Moses, mistake-ridden Moses, and is about to tell him, I'm going to use you for something great. And Moses is like, you must have the wrong dude. Over and over again, that's what he says. So God shows up in this bush that's on fire but isn't consumed, called the burning bush. And he says to Moses, 40 years later, I want you to go back to Egypt and be my mouthpiece. Speak for me. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let all the Hebrew people go. And he'll do it. I mean, he'll be reluctant, but I'm going to make him do it. And Moses is like, wrong guy. Not qualified. Not good enough. I'm not the kind of guy. I don't speak well enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't know what to say. Nobody will believe me. Kenny just preached an awesome series. Awesome series, Kenny. It was legit. Everybody in the whole church is like, can we meet? I want to start serving everywhere. Like, like, chill, people, chill. You know, I'm down to 12 meetings a week for how many people we can get in serving teams right now. But it's awesome. Everybody wants to help out. I love it. But how many of you are still sitting there being like, I'm not qualified. I'm not good enough. I don't have enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm a mistake. I want you to hear the mistakes Moses gave God. They sound just like mistakes I give God when I feel like there's something he wants me to do. You ready? Here's the mistakes he gave him. He said, uh, I don't know, I wrote those down somewhere. Oh, here they are. I wrote this. He said, who am I, God? I'm a nobody. Who am I to do something great for you? You ever feel like that? Here's the next one he says. I don't even know what I'd say. 
<laughs> I can't teach in that kid's class. I can't preach up front. I can't shake people's hands when they walk through the door. I can't be part of the worship team. They might ask me to say something. I don't even know what I'd say. Moses said the same thing. And even if I did know what to say, nobody would even believe me. That's what he says, the third thing he says. I get to hear that one. All the time. Oh, man, I don't speak like you. I don't teach like you. I don't know like you. I don't talk like you. I don't live like you. Even if I said the right thing, somebody would be like, I'm not going to believe what you say. I know what you're like. Sounds just like us. Then he's like, well, and on top of that, God, I don't really speak so well, and I'm just begging you, just send anybody else but me. All the things God argues. You know, God doesn't get angry about a whole lot, but he gets angry at Moses in that passage. There's a couple of things God gets angry about in the Bible. One of them is like when you uh, uh, mistreat children. Jesus doesn't like that. But like one of them is right here in this passage. When God's telling you to trust him to do something great, and you're like, nah, I'm good. That makes God angry. When God's saying, I'm giving you all of this to use, and you're like, no, 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 I'm going to fall back and watch. And God's like, I'm angry about that. He gets a little angry at Moses. Over and over again, every argument, every plea Moses makes to get out of this assignment, God basically says the same thing to him over and over again. Here's what it is. You ready? He says, doesn't matter. I got you. I'll be with you. I don't even know what I'd say. Don't worry about it. I'll let you know what to say in the moment. If I do say something, they're not even going to believe me. Don't sweat it. I'll take care of the fact that they believe it or not. I don't know. I'm pretty unqualified. I don't even speak so well. I don't, who am I? I'm a nobody. Don't worry about it. I'll be right there with you over and over again. I'm going to show you one of them in just a second. But over and over again, he kind of keeps making these excuses because at best, he was confused about who he was. At best. I'm no good. I'm not like these other people. I'm not talented enough. I'm a mistake. And over and over, God kept saying, don't sweat it. I got your back. I'm with you. I'm with you. So I just want to show you these on the board. This conversation God has with Moses. See if this isn't how we sound a lot of times. So Moses kept saying to God these things. Ready? He kept saying, God, I don't have enough ability. I think I got that. Yeah. I don't have enough ability. But God kept saying back to him, I don't care about your ability. I care about your availability. You with me? Moses kept saying to God, God, there's too much junk in my past. Nobody's going to believe me. I'm too screwed up. I'm too messed up. But God kept talking about the future, what he was going to do. Moses was completely concerned about the outcome. When I go to these people, they're not going to believe anything I say, and they're not even going to know who sent me. Who should I even tell them who sent me? I'm so worried about how the outcome is going to turn out. It's paralyzing. And God said, don't worry about the outcome. I'm not worried about the outcome. I'm just interested in your obedience. And Moses, he kept seeing himself as a mistake. But God kept calling him his mouthpiece. And I wonder for how many of us, oh, we don't necessarily have a verbal conversation with God every day about it, but I wonder for how many of us in our heart, the conversation with God goes something like this. I don't really have enough ability. My past is too messed up. I don't, I don't think what you're asking me is going to get to the outcome you're thinking it's going to get to. I don't think it's going to work out that way. God, you must have the wrong guy. I'm just a mistake. 
And God keeps looking back at you and saying, I got you. I'm with you. All I need you to be is available. All I need you to think about is the future. All I need you to do is obey me. You are my mouthpiece. You are literally my masterpiece. And I'm going to do something great through you. Let me show you just one of these. Ephesians, or <laughs> Ephesians. Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Look what Moses says to God. Here's one of these examples. Ready? Maybe. But Moses pleaded with the Lord. In some translations, that actually says, oh, my Lord. He's like, OML. OML, Lord. I'm not very good with words. I never have been. That's the past. You with me? I'm still not now. Even though you're speaking to me, even though you're telling me what to do, even though you're telling me I'm going to do something great, I don't buy it. I'm not good. I'm not a good speaker. I never have been. I never will be. You got the wrong guy. I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Here's God's response. I love God's response. Verse 11 says this. Lord asked Moses, who do you think makes people's mouths? You're trying to tell me your mouth is not good enough? Who do you think even made that mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak? Whether people hear or do not hear? Who do you think you're talking to? I know what I made. You're trying to tell me you're something. I don't know what it is. I know what I created. Isn't it I, the Lord? Listen to verse 12, the thing he kept coming back to every time Moses objected. Now get going. I mean, I feel like he's saying that to some of us. Get out your seat and get moving. There's a world to reach. There's great things to accomplish. Get going. I got your back. I will be with you. Stop being a wimp. Stop being afraid. Stop looking in the mirror and seeing something everybody else is saying. I created you. Get on the move. I'll show you what to do. I'll tell you what to say. I will be with you the whole time. You're not a mistake. You're my work of art. You're my masterpiece. You know, they did this study, and they found that every human being is born with what are called mirror neurons. Anybody ever hear of mirror neurons? Yeah, calling out, calling out those high school science teachers in the back of the room. Mirror neurons, right? I don't teach that kind of science. I can hear them after church now. I don't teach that kind of science. Mirror neurons. Here's what a mirror neuron is, right? It's a neuron in your brain that allows you to see, feel, and understand what other people are saying, feeling, and understanding without them even telling you. It's how babies can like see and read the expression on their mom or dad's face. They can hear the tone in their voice. They don't even understand the words, but their mood can change because they experience the same feeling you're having by what you're reflecting to them. And so kids grow up and they know when mom or dad are angry without mom or dad even saying a word. Uh-oh. And they walk the other way, right? They know it's like time to get out the way, right? And they know when you're angry or you can like coo and giggle and laugh at a baby like some of you are doing right now. And you can do that and the baby will be like, ah, and they laugh back at you because they could tell what you're feeling. It's like a mirror of their mental neurons. It's how we communicate non-verbally. And every human being is wired with those. And it's why I have to come face to face with God every day and look in the mirror with Him, at Him, 
Because if not, if I'm not looking at him every day and getting that residual reflection from him, I'm going to start to believe the lies everybody else is telling me. That I'm a loser, that I'm an adulterer, that I'm an addict, that I'm, a, 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 I'm inadequate, that I'll never be good enough. All you are is a divorcee. All you are is a second-rate citizen. All you are is inadequate. You don't even, you're not even that smart. And I start to look in the mirror, and you're like, you know what? I don't look like I'm that smart. You're right. And so I need to look into the mirror that God is holding every day to get the mirror neuron, to get the reflection He wants me to see so that I'll recognize I'm a masterpiece, not a mistake. Let me see if I can sum it up for you this way. Moses' main problem and our main problem in this scenario, right? Moses kept putting the process first. And he kept thinking, if I just work the process, eventually I'll get to the promise that God is telling me. If I just run to Midian and put in some hard work and marry somebody and get some kids and get a job, if I just get some education, if I just get into a factory, if I just learn how to farm, if I just master technology, if I just do all this stuff in the process, my five-year plan, my 10-year plan, then on the other side, I'll get to the promise of a good, successful, happy, fulfilled life. But that's cart before the horse. And what God says over and over again in the Bible is, you start with my promise. And if you'll start with my, my promise, then the process will work out. See, when you start with the process, the goals and the strategies and the step-by-step um, um, things to do each day to lead to a successful life, then every time you face a setback, you'll find yourself questioning the promise. It's not going the way I processed it. It's not, it's not working out the way I planned it. And, and so I guess it's not true. I guess God isn't with me. I guess God didn't make me a masterpiece. I guess I'm not really loved. I guess I really am a mistake because I start to doubt the, pr- the promise when the process hits some setbacks. But if I start with the promise that God is good, that God is for me, that he's got my back and that he's with me no matter where I go, no matter what I face. If I start with that promise, then when I face setbacks along the way, they will make me cling tighter to the promise. This is what I'm saying. We got, we got people out there, when they face adversity, they're clinging tighter to Jesus, holding on to his promises, understanding their value in Christ. And then we got other people that are trying to work a process without starting with believing the promises of God. And something doesn't go their way. And they all of a sudden, they look in the mirror, and all they see is this guy. Don't make fun. My kids colored that, all right? They look in the mirror, and all they see is a monster, a mistake. God keeps saying, I'm with you. And you keep giving him all the reasons why it's not working out that way. And he's saying, you're starting with the wrong thing. You're starting with the wrong thing. Don't look in there, decide you're a monster and you got to fix it. Look in there and see that I love you. We'll take care of it together. Don't start with the process. Start with the promise. And, And you're looking through this mirror every day and you're concluding that you're nothing but a monster. I don't know if I can prop that one up or not, Michael. You think that's you. We don't see you that way, but God certainly doesn't see you that way. 
And he's saying, meet with me every day. I'll show you the real you. That dog will hunt, huh? That's right. That's what you're thinking. I know. He's like, meet with me every day. I will show you the real you, the one I created to do amazing, awesome things. We'll, we'll work on the process together, but just trust the promises. Trust the promises. And if you do that, you'll now listen, up to this point, that almost sounds like a, a, it's almost sounds like a self-help talk, all right? Because this isn't actually complete yet. Okay, this isn't actually the completed thing God's trying to get to us today. Because if you just look in the mirror and, and you're like, oh, I kind of see what's there. Okay, I'll, I'll try to see myself differently. That's not okay. That's not going to work. You, you're going to come back to monster guy. You're going to eventually think you're, when you do something wrong, you're going to think you're monster guy. But really what God is saying, you know when you look in a mirror, you actually see everything in reverse? Anybody know that? My kids haven't figured out that either because they like touch the wrong side of their face. when they're, Okay. So it's like you see everything in reverse. And I feel like that's what God is saying to us today. You ready? He's saying you've got to reverse the reflection. Reverse the reflection. And instead of looking at yourself, you look into my mirror. What I am. What I've done. That's where I get all my value. That's where I get all my importance in life. You're trying to look into the mirror of what you see, and you don't like what you're seeing. But I'm telling you, stop looking in that mirror. Reverse the reflection. And when you do that, and I meet with God every day, and I love this. Like I got a lot of sports guys. You ever see those sports guys like... Uh, uh, Dwight Howard or Cam Newton, they'll be like, they'll do that. You know what I mean? Like they're pulling back so you can see the Superman jersey underneath. It's like we're walking around being like, don't look at me. Don't see anything. And God's like, no, no, no. Reverse the reflection. I'm shining all this down. You look into it every day. You believe and trust in those promises every day. And you'll start walking around like this. Let me show you guys something. I want to show you what's in me. Because greater is the one who's in me than the one that's in the world. And I'm more than a conqueror. I'm an overcomer. And no matter what setbacks I face, I'm holding on to God's promises. I am reversing the reflection so that you can see what I see, which is Jesus has got my back. No matter what. And I don't have to live my life up and down anymore. Setback or set up. Step back or step up. It doesn't matter. In all circumstances, I am more than a conqueror through Him who loves me. And I reverse the reflection and people can finally see the me God designed me to be. Not a mistake. Not a mistake. Will you stop living in the prison of your mistakes that make you think you're a monster? And instead... Will you reverse the reflection? The enemy, he meant it all for evil. But God just setting you up for a miracle. It looked like a mistake the way I was raised. It looked like a mistake what those people did to me. But God was in the process of getting me hooked up with a miracle. I just couldn't see it yet. It might be a daughter of a king. It might be the Nile River. It might be a brand new church. It might be a friend that you meet this week. But God is setting you up for something great where you can make an impact if you will reverse the reflection. Stop seeing yourself in the mirror of mistakes and instead start seeing your reflection the way God designed you to be, a masterpiece. 
reverse the reflection. When everybody else means it for evil, God is ready to redeem you. God is ready to rescue you. So you've got to decide today. You're going to keep trusting your process, trying to work it out to be better and better, or you're going to trust God's promises and realize that he'll just be with you through the process. The choice is yours. But today, some of you need to declare out loud what the enemy meant for evil, God intended for good. Prisons that you've been walking around in for decades, that you've been carrying around, convincing yourself that you're a mistake, you need to release those today to God and say, you know what, I can see that in my life, that the enemy meant that for evil, but you intended it for good all along, and you're trying to make something beautiful out of me. And I am going to walk out of these doors and see a victory. You ready? I am going to walk out of these doors and do something great. I may not be qualified, but Jesus has got my back. And so I'm going to step up and step out. And I'm going to give him everything I got. And I'm going to trust that every step of the way, he's got my back. And I am not a mistake. Will you guys stand and declare that out loud with me?